This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about racism in America. And in particular, what responsibility white people have in doing something about it. Now, I'm a white guy. And for the last year, since the protests after George Floyd's murder, I've been grappling with this question. And I've been surrounded by it, as a lot of the other white people in my life have at least entertained the idea that they benefit from a society where whiteness is idealized. At the same time, almost every entity I come into contact with on a daily basis has tried to take on systemic racism in some way. Whether that's through a social media post, or an ad campaign, or real structural reform. But in this year of learning and acknowledgement, it's really become even more difficult to answer that question in a meaningful way. In the midst of last summer's protests, it was relatively easy to talk about both personal and systemic change. Now, that talk should be giving way to action, right? Well, in some places, those stated goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion are coming up against headwinds created by a status quo that's pretty resistant to change. And many people, many white people, believe we've done enough, that the impacts of last summer's protests have shifted the trajectory of this nation enough that we don't really need to talk about it anymore. Robin D'Angelo is not one of those people. You might know her as the author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Race. That book was one of the titles that really made the rounds last summer. Though, as D'Angelo points out in this conversation with Jason Johnson, the host of Slate's A Word podcast, it was already a bestseller when it came out in 2018. And for D'Angelo, the world hasn't really changed all that much since 2018. At least, it hasn't changed enough that those who seek to rid America of its white supremacy, especially those who are somewhat new to the idea, can let their guard down. D'Angelo and Johnson try here to chart a path forward, and it's a tricky one. But also, in the end, it may be as simple as being a good person. Though... Maybe that isn't so simple either. This conversation and all other conversations on the social justice track at the 2021 Crosscut Festival was sponsored by Waldron, which would like to share the following message. Waldron helps organizations and people to reach their full potential, guiding human-centered journeys to organizational and professional success with courage, compassion, and discretion. Clients seek out Waldron when their brands are on the line for impactful board consulting, organization and leadership development, executive coaching, career transition, and career management. Waldron is proud to support Crosscut, a forum for truth and dialogue that increases knowledge, understanding, and compassionate participation. All right, I've got one note on the recording of the conversation here. You'll hear both of our guests cut out for very brief periods during the latter part of this talk. So, no, that is not your device. 
Thankfully, Jason and Robin's conversation still cuts through these disruptions, but you will notice that the conversation does end abruptly. I promise you that both guests were gracious in their salutations. All right, I hope you enjoy the talk. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Uh, Dr. D'Angelo, really glad to have you here today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be talking to you, Jason. Dr. Uh, Johnson, excuse me. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You are the one being interviewed, so you get you get oh, all. You the... just put me at ease too quickly. <laughs> um, so I, I, I want to start with this, and and I, you know, it's generic to begin with praise, but I want to say this sincerely. I actually read your book last year. I, I I read White Fragility last year. I thought it was an excellent book. I thought it was. It, it stepped into a space that not enough people were stepping into, quite frankly, and not enough white people were stepping into, quite frankly. So I just want to say that from the beginning. Uh, big fan of your work. I, I'm going to start with where we are right here, right now in this country. Were you surprised that Officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd? And, and what do you think that says about where our country is right now on race? I was surprised that he was found guilty on all three accounts. Just, just because watching the trial, it, it seems absolutely undeniable and indisputable that he's guilty on all three accounts based on the history uh, of our criminal justice system in, in relation to cases like this. I didn't expect that, you know, that to come through on all accounts. Um, symbolically, it is profound and of profound importance, but... Uh, as we've seen every inch of uh, progress, as Carol Anderson so powerfully argues in White Rage, every inch of racial progress has been met by a white backlash. And we can see at the same time those forces growing really strongly. So we cannot be complacent. We cannot say, oh, this is the turning point. Uh, it is a potential beginning. Uh, but if we relax around it, it that's all it will be, I, I think. I mean, history shows us that. So the day of the ruling, uh, I was I, I, I did a lot of media talking about it. And my first reaction is I was not surprised and I wasn't particularly happy. Mm -hmm. I had long predicted that Derek Chauvin was going to be found guilty. And the reason why is because I felt like white supremacy in America occasionally has its sacrificial lambs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, okay, we're going to say that Trent Lott and Jesse Helms were the racists in Congress and once we take care of them, the problem is solved. We'll yeah. we'll say this is one bad apple. And so, you know, how do you respond to sort of that take that it's like, well, of course, the justice system will get rid of this one bad guy after a year of protest. But, you know, does it speak to the fact that we may see, you know, changes when it comes to the other officers being held accountable or the half a dozen other shootings that we've seen just during the two or three weeks of the trial? Yeah, well, all systems of oppression can accommodate uh, exceptions, but right. the rule will, rule will remain consistent, and the exceptions will be used to negate the rule. Right, right. <laughs> uh, to, you know, I mean, we, we saw that during Obama's presidency. We're post-racial now. I mean, it was actually harder for me to do my work during Obama's presidency than it is today, uh, because I don't think anybody is in denial that we are so not post-racial, mm -hmm. uh, not only could the system accommodate that exception, but it gave it an infusion 
uh, of racism, an infusion of explicit racism. It, it, it got more legitimacy uh, to express than, than it had before. Uh, so, you know, we, we're going to have to be really careful, as always, you know, dot every T and, uh, excuse me, dot every I and cross every T and still, right? I mean, uh, the question that keeps coming to me is like, what a price to pay. Like, what does it take to get white people to see this? Is that what it took? Nine and a half minutes, three minutes beyond no pulse in order for us to say, well, maybe he didn't do something. Right. right. And, and that's what we're going to be up against in every case. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because that was that was essentially my sentiment. I was like, it took basically a nine minute snuff film that was seen mm -hmm. around the entire planet. Yeah. Uh, and then a year's worth of protests. And then, quite frankly, a phalanx of other white police officers yes. <laughs> saying he's the bad one, you know, and EMTs and everybody else. I mean, you know, when it no. got to the point where one of the witnesses was a, an amateur MMA guy, I was like, goodness gracious, you couldn't have come up with a, a, a better list. Um, yeah. When you talked about how you did this work under President Obama, I, this is what's really fascinating to me. I think a lot of people who are watching. How did you get into this kind of work? Like, how did you get into this formally in talking to white people about white people and about racism? Well, pretty much any any answer I give you is going to be on some level a strategic answer, right? I am an educator. Yes. Um, and interestingly, um, recently one of the strategies I used got got thrown back and and used as proof that I just you know showed up in 2018 and took advantage of that moment. And let me add. Um, that in the intro, you said that, uh, you know, my book became a bestseller uh, when George Floyd was killed. But in fact, it debuted in 2018 on the New York Times bestseller list and was on the list for at least a year prior to that moment. I just want to be clear because it's often um, framed as if I took advantage of something. Right. Um, but uh, I I fell into it. I. I was an unqualified white person who, like millions of other unqualified white people, got a job I wasn't qualified for. Um, and, you know, I sometimes wonder if, if, if <laughs> uh, black folks aren't kind of amazed at the mediocrity that white people get away with. Let me just say We're that. We're no longer amazed by it. We're used to it. But please <laughs> yeah, continue. Right. This is um, <laughs> You know, and I, I was your classic white progressive or liberal, as I called myself at the time, right? One, I thought, of course, I'm qualified to go into workplaces uh, in cross-racial teams and uh, help primarily white employees, uh, you know, grapple with, with racism. I'm qualified because I'm an open-minded white person. And two, that's going to be really fun. Mm -hmm. uh, who wouldn't like to have those conversations, aren't they cool? Isn't this interesting? And on both counts, <laughs> I was in for the most profound learning of my entire life. So basically, I just I answered a job announcement for a diversity trainer. I had just graduated with a degree in sociology. Uh, had no idea what I could do for a living. <laughs> Saw that ad um, and applied for the job and got it. And everything about it was fish out of water from from having my racial worldview challenged mm -hmm. by folks of color in a way that you know I, i'm a non-traditional student so i was in my 30s at this time when i graduated with a bachelor's um, and i could be that far in life and at that point college educated a parent and never had had my racial worldview challenged mm -hmm. i couldn't even tell you i had a racial worldview 
um, and certainly not in any sustained way by a significant number of people of color. But we were working in cross-racial teams. So that was the first fish out of water. And the second one was the hostility, the meanness of white people to this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I was a lot like a deer in headlights uh, in the beginning, but it it became so predictable. It it really is a lot like a script. And I I imagine this happens for you, right? Like, okay, here it goes. I know exactly what this person is going to say right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually went on to get my PhD. Uh, so I'm a little bit different in that I, I went from practice to theory right? <laughs> rather than theory to practice, but that's how I ended up here. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to, I want to dig into something that you mentioned, even just this, this, this monologue that you just gave, Yeah. you know, I am amazed at your comfort in talking about your whiteness. Because you can say with not a hint of of self-deprecating humor or condescension, it's like, yeah, I was a mediocre white person. I stumbled into this job, but now I've done X, Y, and Z. And that is a level of candor that most white people seem incapable, incapable of having about themselves. Why is it that white people have so much difficulty talking about whiteness, even amongst themselves? And I ask that not just as a scholar and an academic at a public intellectual, I just ask that as a black person, because black people have no problem talking about being black amongst ourselves. There's a, there's several threads, right? There's not just one. So the, I'm just going to, the first one that comes to my mind is it serves us not to have these conversations. It serves us to be uh, too uh, uncomfortable, to, to have such delicate sensibilities that we can't tolerate it. Th- th- there's a function to that. That's not just a natural response. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece. Uh, Another piece is is the paradigm we're using. I I don't think you could have come up with a more effective way to protect racism as a system um, and the way that white people benefit from it than to define it as an individual act of conscious meanness. Right. And as long as you define it that way, you guarantee denial and defensiveness. Um, and, and sometimes when people, t- sometimes often when white people take umbrage to what I'm saying, um, I say, Hey, if that's how I was defining racism, I agree with you that it would be offensive for me to suggest that you're automatically racist just because you're white when I don't know you, but that is not the sociological definition. That is not the understanding of the framework that, uh, those of us who really engage in this work are using. Um, and when you when you understand it as a system, I mean, things like guilt just become moot. Right. I did not choose to be socialized into uh, racist ideology, into uh, white supremacist ideology, internalization of uh, superiority. I would never have chosen that, but I wasn't given a choice. Um, what I do feel now is responsible for the outcome. I was socialized into that. Uh, And now it's on me to challenge that. And that's actually liberating. Like that's transformative. And although painful, it's also the most exhilarating intellectually, emotionally um, work I could ever imagine doing. So when you say that, you say that it's sort of liberating. I'm thinking about the fact that uh, and I, I was reading your most recent book, which I was also really much enjoying because you got into this conversation okay. of individualism. Yep. It's talking about sort of nice white people. And so your average white person, when you do these presentations, when you have these talks, is saying to themselves, wait a minute, 
if I am not individually mean, if I don't say to Jason, I hate you because you're black, and quite frankly, no one says that, right? Like, like Richard Spencer, white nationalists don't say, I hate black people. They just say, I don't want you here. So, so when someone comes up to you and says, hey, I don't individually do mean things. I hired a black intern and my brother's cousin, sister's next door neighbor's college roommate actually dated a black guy once. When you hear that from people, what is your counter to get them to realize like, no, you still actually have individual responsibility, even if you haven't individually been hostile to somebody? Well, first of all, I would question whether they had not individually been hostile to somebody or hurtful because I would imagine um, the thousand daily cuts that are so exhausting for black folks in primarily white environments, as I imagine you are, um, they're not conscious or intentional, but they have an impact nonetheless. So so that, that goes back to that question of not if I've been socialized into this, but how, right? My racism doesn't look like a white nationalist racism, but it looks like something. If you, if you grant that the society is built on, rooted in, and permeates with uh, white supremacist ideology and racism, that it is a system in all institutions, then you know you're a part of it, and you can change your question to, okay, how am I a part of it? What does mine look like? How do I know how well I'm doing? Um, what have I, one, do I even have relationships? I'm, I, right. It always surprises me people who live, white people who live pretty much completely segregated lives, as most white people do, and yet are totally confident that they have no racism, no bias, would never do anything. But on the occasion when they got feedback that they have, how have they responded? And if they never got feedback again, <laughs> Odds are that doesn't mean they're doing great. It means they they respond in a way that said they can't hear it. And so the relationship just isn't as authentic as they think that it is. Um, so those are the three. I mean, I, I can't probably come out and directly say that to somebody who's saying I don't do mean things, but that's kind of what I would try to have them understand. And I would also use an analogy that they might be able to relate to and um, this one's easy for uh, for anyone who identifies as female. I'm a cisgender female. My pronouns are she, her. I'm white. Um, it is to imagine that any man could be untouched by patriarchy, right? By the this, what little boy doesn't know that it's better to be a boy than a girl, and things are going to go better for you if you don't do anything that's associated with girls or girl-like. Um, and it's really similar around race, right? Um, we know at a very early age that it's better to be white. Um, and so how, how is the t internalization of that coming out? So along those same lines, uh, you know, you're, you're, you talk about white fragility and it's, it's sort of white people's apprehension, defensiveness and whatever in dealing with these issues. But what I find interesting is that sort of white fragility can manifest itself differently in men versus women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a white man's fragility comes in terms of, uh, you know, it, it really his sense of masculinity. Like, hey, I'm a white man, I've done this, I've earned this, I've earned this, I've earned this, I've earned this, and I think Halle Berry's hot, so I'm not a bigot. And then, you know, a white woman is like, well, hey, I'm already a woman, how could I be an oppressor? Because I've already been denied opportunities because, you know, I had somebody try and me to me at my first seven jobs. So. What's the what's the process internally 
and breaking down those sort of gendered biases that people have to get them to look at their racial biases? Well, I might say, yes, you've worked really, really hard, but there's a major barrier you didn't face, so that impacted the outcome of your hard work. And I often use the swimming in currents in the water. When you swim with the currents, not only do you, does it impact the outcome of your efforts, you're moving your arms, you're working, um, uh, but it's paying off in a way that you don't even see or feel. When you swim against the current, you're acutely aware of it. And that's why I would try to go in somewhere where they might relate to being um, against the current. Um, I usually would ask, when white people move to their marginalized status, I just said, so so tell me what um, anti-blackness looks like in the white queer male community. Hmm. Tell me what anti-blackness looks like among Ashkenazi Jews of European descent. What's white feminism? You know, I mean, you can you can ask those kinds of questions, um, and hopefully, sorry, oh no die. problem. <laughs> I'll just keep my finger here. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, sometimes that helps, and and I think you know that if the question is ultimately how do you get white people to engage and see this without defensiveness, that's the million dollar question. Um, and there are strategies, but it's hard. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, during a big speech that he gave, um, it, was, it was town hall. So Joe Biden, uh, somebody asked him about race and racial togetherness, bringing the country together. And, and Joe Biden said, look, you know, one of the things that I think is a sign of progress in this country is look at all these interracial commercials, right? You didn't see those 10 or 15 years ago. Um, when I was done throwing various things at my television screen, uh, what I wrote and pointed out is that most of the presentations of sort of interracial relations on television and commercials, it's always white men and black wives. Mm. I mean, that, that is primarily what is shown. So it is still racial progress in terms of a sort of patriarchal and racial standard. As long as a white guy is on top, that's fine. Mm. Whether his wife is Asian, is black or something else like that. What do you say when you are doing seminars or doing training and you meet white people who say, I have a black spouse. How can I be racist if I love this man or I love this woman or we have adopted black children? Because those are people who will probably demonstrate like I remember what I had to do to learn how to, to, to do my daughter's hair. I remember the time that my husband uh, was denied a job opportunity and I heard some racial slur in the bathroom because I was just a bunch of white women there. How do you get to those white people to get them to understand that diverse Cheerios commercials do not mean racism is over? Yeah, a, a couple of ways. One is, so so what is what does your life actually look like? What has changed in your life on the ground as a result of these commercials? Mm -hmm. So I don't ever want to minimize the symbolic power of, of those representations. Um, but one of the things I, I show a picture of... Um, the interns, the White House interns, um, how white they are. And, and then I make a point that likely Biden's interns and his cabinet are going to be more diverse. And then I say, and not one single person listening to me right now grew up in a society in which Biden's cabinet was the norm. Right. And all your socialization is not come undone because at this point in your life, you see some images. It's important. It's a beginning, but it becomes superficial if it's not followed up with actual outcome differences. Mm -hmm. um, and inclusion alone is not an outcome difference. 
Right. I actually have a piece um, under a chapter called Common Patterns of White Progressives, and it's mm -hmm. basically making sure everyone knows you're married to a black man. Oh, God, yes. That pattern. and <laughs> It's insufferable. <laughs> yes. And the point is, not that you can't share that. If I was married to a black man, what an incredibly potential source of deep understanding. But I say potential right. because so many white women married to black men don't demonstrate that. Because if you are using your marriage as proof that you're not racist, you don't understand systemic racism, right? right? If anything, what you come away with is this is lifelong and ongoing. It'll never be finished. I have so much more awareness. I have so much more skills. And I still step in it on occasion. Um, and, you know, to, to use a harsh amplified example, um, I think it's fair to say Harvey Weinstein is a misogynist. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet he was married to a woman. He might have had daughters. He could function around woman, women. He didn't assault every woman he met. Uh, he probably wouldn't have assaulted me. My hair is gray. Uh, but could I feel his general misogynistic orientation to the world? Probably. I could probably feel it. Well, we have a much more subtle version. All of us have some version of the ideology of white supremacy. You just can't be exempt from it. Right. Um, and, and denying it. Uh, this is what Ibram Kendi says so beautifully. Um, denial is the heartbeat of racism, and I'm not racist is the sound of that heartbeat. So I'm going to ask you, if I may, Dr. Sure. Johnson, mm -hmm. when white people say, I'm not racist, and no matter what follows it, are you thinking, great, I'm talking to a white person with a critical consciousness right now? No, I don't believe that at all. Okay. <laughs> In fact, if I hear a white person say, and I, I, I use this example all the time, um, you know, I am probably sexist, I am probably homophobic, and mm -hmm. I'm probably racist because I was raised in America. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know the kinds of things that I was raised to think in this country. The difference that I always say, because I would never call myself non-homophobic, non-racist, non-anti-trans, whatever, is I make a conscious effort yes. to think about those things when I interact with people and not just those particular people. Yeah. That's what I attempt to do. Um, and it, it, it's interesting that you say that because this is a conversation we had before, because you get into those questions about like allyship, mm -hmm. right? And in my view, I don't put a great deal of focus on allyship. I, I focus on sort of, are you a generally decent human being? I have lots of, for example, I have lots of white students who consider me like a second dad. I have lots of LGBTQ students who like, you know, consider me to be one of their closest mentors. I am not queer. I am not white. I have all sorts of bias and prejudices, but I have found a way to still be a loving human being towards them. And so I ask you this question, when somebody comes to you, when some white person comes to you and they're crying and they're in tears after the seminar and they're like, how can I be a better ally? Where do you start with? You say, look, can you treat people as regular human beings? Do you give them a reading list? Because that's often what white people say at the end of this. They say they want to know what to do. But, you know, if somebody runs up to me and says, Jason Johnson, I'm an ally to black people. I'm usually running the other direction because oh, that yeah. sounds performative to me. Yeah. Um, and. I don't know if this would be a surprise to listeners, but I do not call myself an ally or a white ally. Mm -hmm. I am committed to anti-racist work. Um, but as for you, <laughs> Dr. Johnson, to decide if in any given moment I'm actually behaving 
in ways that you might consider allied. Now notice two things, in any given moment, which means I'm not done, I don't arrive. It's not a fixed location. And it, it, it requires accountability, right? I'm the least capable, um, least qualified to make that determination. And, and let's be honest, I, I'm the most invested uh, in the system as it is. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, there's so many perversions uh, of, of racism. So, so many ways that we project onto black and other people of color, our own stuff, if you will. So this idea that you're irrational, you're too angry, uh, you have a chip on your shoulder, you have an agenda. It's such a perversion of, I think white people are the most irrational, the most angry, um, you know, on this topic, the least objective, right? And yet we position ourselves as the, you know, uh, validators of whether, you know, your experience is legitimate or not. Right. The arrogance of whiteness is pretty stunning. Yeah. And, and so along those same lines, when we think about arrogance, a new phenomenon, you know, and it's advanced by technology, is the explosion like the last two or three years in these videos, right, of some white guy being crazy racist at Chipotle, some white woman being called, you know, Karen this or barbecue Becky, who's yelling at random white people. And these are often social circumstances, right? They're, they're encounters at Walmart, they're encounters at the grocery store, they're encounters at the mall. Do you think that kind of public shaming, is it helping white people realize their own behavior when they see it? Like, like the young lady who was the birder, uh, I can't remember her name, but you know, was yelling at the black guy and tried to call the cops on him. Oh, right. Yeah. Do you think these are, are teaching moments for white people or are they just saying, oh, great, now I'm, I'm threatened by cancel culture? How do you think it's playing out? It was Amy Cooper and um, Christopher Cooper. Yes. They're potential teaching moments, but mm-hmm. all too often they get used to reinforce what I call the good, bad binary. Those are the racists and I'm not that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet for like the example of Amy Cooper, it's just too, too perfect. Like in every level you see, you see white fragility, you see white women's tears, you see the expectation that the entire institution would back you up. You see um, the I'm not racist, even as we're acting in racist ways. It's just such a good example. But before I use it and kind of break it down and unpack it, I always say, this is not really about Amy Cooper, right? right? Amy Cooper just beautifully uh, manifested some patterns that, you know, are very common. Mm-hmm. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's my version again of Amy Cooper, right? Notice that Amy Cooper, like, like any white person who's ever been caught on tape <laughs> doing something racist is going to say, I'm not racist. Right. And that's why that claim is functionally meaningless, right? Um, so again, if we use it to separate ourselves, I mean, I used to say something really provocative and I, I stopped, but I, I'll just go here with you. Yes. <laughs> I used to say, um, Donald Trump is not any more racist than I am. Now, what I meant is I grew up in the same culture. When he doesn't say things that are completely off the wall, random, I don't know what you're talking about. That doesn't make sense. Right. Have I never heard what he says about Mexicans? Of course I've heard those things, right? I have the same... You know, or, or it wouldn't make sense. It couldn't resonate if I hadn't also been inculcated with those ideas. Mm-hmm. There is, of course, a difference between us, and that is he amplifies and embraces his racism, and I seek to challenge mine and help other white people do the same. But 
it, it doesn't it doesn't serve the cause to put him in the racist camp if that means I'm over in the not racist camp. Right. Right. And and I, and I like how you say that about Donald Trump because if you take a lot of what Trump has said, like you said, most white people have heard that. Most other people have heard that. Yeah. It's not like what he said is completely out of the bounds uh, of, of, of things that we've heard people say in our social lives, our personal lives, our professional lives, et cetera. Um, we've got about five minutes left. Okay. So I want to get to a couple questions before we start getting to the, to the Q and a, um, cause we've got tons of things coming into the chat right now. So this is, I want to go this into these larger national things earlier this year, January 6th, you had a whole bunch of people try and overthrow the government. I mean, just try to overthrow the government. It was a crowd that was, mostly law enforcement, former military people, and, and you know, 99.9% white. What is your definition? Because again, it goes back to that, like you said, racism is this individual meanness, right? Lots of white people watch that and they're like, oh my God, well, I'm not an insurrectionist, mm -hmm. right? So I can't be a bad person when I call the police. How do you define the difference between being a white nationalist and then the general sort of white supremacy that permeates how most people in this country think? Yeah, I mean, this connects to the conversation about Trump because he just took the dog whistle out of it. Um, uh, Tucker Carlson is following up even even more <laughs> direct. Like, we don't need a dog whistle anymore. We now have permission to express what's always been roiling just under the surface. Mm -hmm. And and I want to make a point. I think that doesn't roil very far under the surface for white progressives either. No. You don't have to scratch very hard on a white progressive to get them quite resentful and, and you know, a lot of... Uh, hostile, I think, uh, anger and anti-blackness can come out. I've oh, yes. 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 I saw um, a lot of that in the primary. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we're back to, like, what's my version of this? Let's not use these situations to to separate ourselves. Um, so ask me the question again. <laughs> <laughs> well, well how, how would you see the difference, if you're explaining to somebody, what's the difference uh, between being a white nationalist and just yeah. a white supremacist? I mean, okay, so so white nationalists are, you know, are, are very clear that they want a white country, a white ruled, a white led. Right. Uh, replacement theory is direct from white nationalism. You will not replace us. We are um, born to lead, uh, destined to lead, and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and they're uh, they're clearly working towards that. Um, I would say a white supremacist is similar. Um, I, I often use the term avowed racist and open racist. But white supremacy is the foundation of this country and the system. It, it, is, it speaks to the hierarchy um, that is expressed in myriad ways that white people are at the top, should be at the top, and, you know, are uh, biologically superior to be at the top. Um, all of us are getting that message. Right. Right. Um, some of us just uh, go unconscious and let it function at an unconscious level by denying it. Some of us are working at it, uncovering it, and others are full-born embracing it and wanting it to be manifested much more clearly. And that might be your insurrection and your white nationalists. And I want to I close with this before we go to the questions. You... you you sort of mentioned this before, but I want to make sure that people really bear down on this. This idea that you can be you can be a part of sort of larger intellectual discussions and and it's still missed out, 
right? So right now we have Republicans all around the country screaming about critical race theory. And they're like, oh, we got to get rid of critical race theory. We got to get rid of critical race theory, even though most of them can't define what critical race theory is. Mm -hmm. My understanding of critical race theory is it is merely, I mean, it has its histories in actually legal studies, yes. but it's merely looking at how the law and then education outcomes and other things may differ and the outcomes may differ and the experience may differ based on somebody's race. How would you define critical race theory? And, and do you think you're a critical race theorist? Uh, yeah. the work that you do? I mean, you and I are both academics. So technically, right. I'm not a critical race theory theorist okay. because it is a very specific uh, philosophical uh, field within uh, maybe what we might call equity studies. And it right. does come out of legal scholarship. Derek Bell was considered to be the father. And, and I don't have my background in that. Mm -hmm. It's being used because it's a really great little soundbite or mean, um, and the theory part is useful to those who want to undermine an anti-racist agenda because you can say, well, see, it's just a theory, which means it's just some belief some people have, and they're trying to impose that belief on us. So I think those who are using it that way are using critical race theory as a stand-in for systemic racism and then saying there is no such thing as systemic racism. And that's the fight. If there's no such thing as systemic racism, we don't have to change these systems, outcomes. You know, the cream just rises, mm -hmm. right? You know, uh, overwhelmingly the top is white because, and male, because white men apparently are the best and the brightest. I mean, I, I also love the way Ibram Kendi says, most people aren't going to argue that by every measure across every institution, blacks are at the bottom. Right and indigenous people and white people are at the top. And there's only two overall explanations, right? Mm -hmm. Black people are inferior. Right. <laughs> or, or systemic racism. And if you're not using systemic racism, then you're using a racist framework to make sense of that outcome. And that to me is the fight over critical race theory. We'll be back with more after this. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So I, we're going to go to audience questions. I'm having a little bit of a challenge right now getting access to the audience questions. They were presented here. If I talked while you're doing that, would it distract you? No, no, please do. Please do. Because <laughs> I had a thought, a question you asked me earlier about like how would how does somebody know um, uh, you know, how can they be an ally? I, I mean, I would always start with self-awareness, self-reflection, self-knowledge. What does this look like in you? And, and then I, I do believe that if you truly have an integrated life, you don't have to ask anybody to teach right. you. If you right. and I hung out and I just shut my mouth and listened and watched and paid attention, I'm sure I would see and learn all I needed to or much of what I needed to about racism just by being with you, seeing your experience, listening to you. You know, it's not something that you have to like spell out for me. Right. Yeah. So uh, we finally got to the questions here. So this is question number one. So a few people have asked, how do you, uh, how do people like you with privilege make space for people 
whose knowledge and lived experiences are not as valued because they're people of color. How do you actively center and not erase their perspectives and voices? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, a, a deep tension. I have struggled with that tension my entire career. It is a both end. There, none of us are outside the system, and there's no like clean way to do any of this work. That's right. for sure. Right. Um, and I, I try to use that. That is the reality. Based on all we've been talking about, based on deep implicit bias, white people are a tad more open to being challenged by someone who it's harder to deny. There's a little bit of that, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, hey, you know, you know and I know, um, that gets me in to crack that open. And I, I think about it as tilling the soil. Let me soften this up a little bit so that folks can hear you and can listen to you. It is not a zero-sum game. If they read one book, that's it. That was the book, and it was by a white author. I mean, the whole point is, if you read my book, that you are opened up to the whole world of incredible black thinking, right? Um, If it does what it's meant to do, if you truly got it because you read White Fragility, you are reading all those other books, right? Right. Um, So to not use this platform or this position, for me, is not acceptable. And as I use it, yes, I'm also centering whiteness. And I'm interrupting whiteness because it stays centered by being unnamed and unmarked. And here we're back to the tension. <laughs> um, and, 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 I and, I, and I've told you, you know, from my perspective, that's a good thing. Because, again, if I were to look at it in a gendered, in a gendered yeah. place, you know, it, it's up to men to get together with other men and say, hey, that's sexist. That's not cool. That's misogyny. This is what we mean. There are internal in-group conversations that can be had with greater authenticity that always demanding, requiring, insisting that an outside and oftentimes oppressed or mistreated group has to walk into the lion's den and make people feel better all the time. Like, you know, so I, 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 I don't I don't see your work as so much centering you in a bad way as much as putting the spotlight mm-hmm. on white people to think about themselves without the. Uh, without the escape hatch of some black woman or black man standing at the front of the room that you could cry on their shoulders and then feel forgiven. Or yeah. sit back and say, no, I don't think so. I'm not, I'll give you that, but I don't think that other example you gave, right? Right. Um, we will never understand racism as white people who are only listening to each other. Right. Um, but I don't think we'll ever fully understand if we only listen to black folks and other folks of color, right? right. And for far too long, we've offloaded all that labor with all the risks and all the costs and all the punishments and all the backlash. And what that does, in addition to that, is it reinforces this idea that we're innocent of race. We are not racially innocent. We are a part of this puzzle. It's this like, you know, I'm so sad that happens to you, but apparently it happens in a vacuum that has nothing to do with me. No, it's coming from me. Right. <laughs> and I have got to be at the table also engaged in this conversation and this work and hopefully do it in ways where I use my platform to amplify black voices. Right. And I, I hope that I've already demonstrated that just in our conversation. And, and I want to add, you know, sort of an anecdote to this, which is very true. When you talk about how these things can still come from white people, I have been in many a room. Uh, in fact, I just did a talk at my alma mater uh, last fall where it was like, you know, hey, black people, tell us what racisms you've experienced here. And it's like, I still work here. 
I can't tell you because for for the three of you who may be cool with it, the other five who aren't, then I get punished, right? I'm I'm not empowered enough in this workspace to tell my truth about the discrimination I face without facing the backlash the moment the person who wants to initiate this conversation leaves the room. Yes. Yeah. I mean, here's here's a, a great spot where I would go into an analogy. Um, you know, imagine that the workplace was doing a thing on uh, sexual assault and rape culture and, and you know, some co-worker, a man, just comes up to a woman and says, have you ever been sexually assaulted? Tell me about it. Like, <laughs> um, it, you have to account for the power difference in that, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm asking you that question across not just power, but across a history of harm, right. a history in which most of the time when you've answered that question, actually you've gotten more punishment, not less punishment. And a lot of white people are like, well, but you don't know me, you know, why would you assume that about me? And it's like, well, why? I think it's actually quite uh, rational Why would uh, I? <laughs> and smart for you to assume that about me. And let me show you different, mm-hmm. not tell you different. Um, and even if you're my boss, this is, this is, um, um, Leticia Nieto's distinction between rank and status. Mm-hmm. You could be my boss, so your status in the organization is above mine, but rank-wise, you're a black man and I'm a white woman. Right. And that doesn't change, and I can still subject you to racism mm-hmm. even as you sign my paychecks. Exactly, exactly. Um, another question from the You speak of white people getting away with mediocrity. Um, how do we help give a hand up to people of color without being demeaning or diminishing? I guess you don't think about it as helping them, yeah. right? <laughs> okay, okay. this is a great, I think, moment for me to actually ask you that question. I mean, here's an opportunity to hear your perspective on that. How, how would you see, how would you experience somebody doing that? So okay. first off, it, it's interesting because the language itself, like I said, I find demeaning. It's like, how do I know you can even give me a hand up? I may be more qualified than you. Right. I think the, the most important thing that white people can do in a workplace environment is try to develop prior to any interactions with jobs, try to develop your own sincere framework on what you think qualifications are and then hold to those regardless of who you happen to be interacting with. Because all too often what happens is people have an idea as to what they think is qualified, but they meet this young white guy who's like, ah, gosh, you know what? He reminds me of my best friend, Luke, back when we were in school. I spent a couple of years screwing around too. And then I got myself together or, oh my gosh, you know, Laura, she's applying, you know, she's a single mom, she's 26, she's white, da, 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 da suddenly standards melt away when mm-hmm. white people want to find opportunities to bring more of themselves into opportunities. So if you hold to a sincere set of principles, if you tell yourself the only person who should be qualified for this job can type 99 words a minute, and that's my standard, that's one thing I'm going to hold to, it may actually allow you to be more sincere and objective and counter some of your cultural biases when it comes to hiring. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, quite frankly, when you're in these these mostly white spaces, you got to tell people, hey, we need to expand where we're looking. We need to find where we're looking for applicants. The fact that you keep going to the same places, you know, even if you're going to Harvard and you're trying to just get black kids out of Harvard, there's other smart people in the country. There's there's smart people who go to you know Cleveland State. There's smart people who go to Benedict College and everything else like that. So I, I think those are the first two steps that I think white people should do, that I have advocated for when I'm in positions where white folks are asking me, hey, how do we do these hirings? Thank you. And, and here's something that I'd like to add. Mm-hmm. You actually make um, 
anti-racist skills and awareness a qualification. If you're not going to make it a qualification, then do not put on your website for your uh, business that you value diversity. Mm-hmm. And, and then you put, now you're putting the onus also pressure on white people, right? If you want to change a culture, and this is one of the things that organizations often do is they just add, right? Right. Like, let's add some color. Okay, great. And then they think they've accomplished it. But if you haven't simultaneously been addressing the consciousness of those who, let's be honest, have always controlled the table, still control the table, and it's up to them whether you even get a seat at the table, if you're not simultaneously working with them, you're adding people into hostile water mm-hmm. and then you wonder why why did they stay right. so you know you should have filtered through threaded through all your interview questions um, questions designed to get at what is this person's basic orientation to these issues and you, you don't have to be an ethnic studies professor to you know get the job but there should be some basic orientation that you have that's demonstrable i i can't tell you the impact i think it would have if if we saw that in today, in 2021, how could we not see it as a qualification to be successful, to have some ability to engage in these conversations? Right. And, and to be able to show, uh, as you said, that you you have this sort of consistent cultural competence and that it's integrated into everything you do, not just in hiring, but in, say, the classes that you teach and the people that you've mentored and the people that you've assisted one way or another. Because if you can't show it as a through line in your work, yeah then it's going to be situational and episodic. Right. Uh, so. and, and at least you're open to ongoing education, right? That's what I mean about like, you know, hey, you don't have to have it all down, but you you, you write that right there. Even right. recognizing that it's ongoing and you're uh, open to the ongoing training, not, you know, resistant to it. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Robin and Jason for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Seth Halloran. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Chris Novich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.